Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I'm very, very pleased to have someone I've had the honor of working with many years ago and keeping in touch ever since. Uh, and seeing his, uh, what I describe as a sort of meteoric rise, to being CEO on three occasions at least, maybe four or five occasions. So, you know, often this is about uh, inspiring leaders and what they achieve. Um, for my guest, it's always been about development and that we've worked together both for his own development and the development of his team. And he cares about others so much, so very much helping others, less fortunate. He's an honorary doctor from uh, Harriet Watt University where he combined banking which has been much of his profession and his career with social mobility. And he's also been in the Social Mobility Commission. He's, he's chairman of Experience Experien UK, doing all the uh, assessments of whether you've got a good rating. And he's also a non-executive director of Robert Walters. Uh, so recruitment and finding the right talent is very important to him. But I knew him back in Barclays where he spent 13 years and did a number of CEO roles and was very inspiring to a number of people including, ironically, my daughter, Bryony, who uh, gets married this year in September to Mark, who was working in Stephen's team. And uh, the two of them fell in love, despite being told that they were not to do anything like that. You cannot help young couples when they do. Uh, and here is 10 years later, uh, Bryony is now uh, getting married this year to Mark, and he works at the FCA. So I'm very proud of both of them. But uh, Mark was very inspired by working with Stephen. So a huge number of different jobs. Also worked in a lovely organization, which I, I know, C. Horan Co., where he was the group CEO and did some great work there in the private banking. So without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself and what he's doing now. And he won't mention, but he has a CBE. So without further ado, would you introduce yourself? Dylan, thank you. And it's a real privilege to, to be here. And um, thank you for all those kind words and the very support that you have provided to me and my team over the many years. Um, uh, before I tell you what I do, I'm delighted about Mark and Brian, two lovely people, and um, uh, I think they'll be very happy for, for years to come. Um, my day job today is I am the Chief Executive of the Specialist uh, Bank Aldermore PLC, um, and we do a variety of things uh, across the UK, and um, it's, a, it's a great job. It's a great, great organisation with some great people, doing some great things to help the, what I call the underserved and the underwhelmed. That's a nice way of describing it. And Stephen, thank you for that. And um, we were talking, you and I, we've always been talking about what, what makes good leaders, how to develop further. You read widely and deeply. Yeah, so you've got an honorary doctorate, you know, for much of your studies. But we were talking about inspiring leadership, much of the work Lee and I did with our four books, Inspiring Leadership, Inspiring Women Leaders, Top Tips for Inspiring Women Leaders, and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. Um and, and I asked you specifically, you know, if you were to call out two inspiring leaders, who would you choose? And, and what were the qualities that you admire about them? So really over to you. Yeah, I found that very hard, actually, because there are many leaders who I admire from both afar and near. 
Um, and I could I could mention many both in the UK and, and, and non-UK where I've had the privilege of working and living in, in different places outside of the UK. Um, the two I mentioned, uh, I did actually work with um, one was my boss and one I, I wasn't my boss, but I interact with on, on numerous occasions, uh, both during my, my Barclays career. Um, the first is um, David Roberts. And I, I mentioned him first because actually I knew him before the other person I'll mention. Uh, I knew him from a relatively young age and I still know him now. So I've probably known him for, I, I dare, dare say actually, um, but at least, at least 25 years. And um, I was... Uh, a non-graduate on the graduate program of Barclays and I'd been very successful in a branch banking world and I was suddenly sort of moved into or on the cusp of moving into the head office environment which is very different to what I'd grown up in in that organization and David did two things one is um, he opened a couple of doors for me um, and put me in touch with people so he didn't give me a job I had to get that myself but he made connections for me and all of that was based on me reaching out to him uh, following a, a meeting he had with sort of the graduate program uh, members. Um, and over the years, he's been someone who, if I reach out to for a perspective or just to, you know, to bounce some ideas off or just frankly a friendly cup of tea or coffee, no matter what he's been in, he's, he's had some super senior jobs and very busy, you know, deputy chair of the NHS, I think, for a while or chair of Nationwide, he's now chair of the Bank of England. He's always made time and he never tells me what to do. He just gives a perspective, an opinion, a thought, you know, uh, what well, it might be a market movement or, you know, a job situation or a work situation or a challenge with a, a board member or a colleague and just give me a, a viewpoint on it. And might only be 20 minutes here, half an hour there, not even that frequent sometimes, but two things have come out of that. One, it, it's always been invaluable guidance without any agenda or, or anything else um and you know, we, we meet socially sometimes as a long-suffering Everton fan and I'm a long-suffering Spurs fan and he's always always made time and uh, I'm grateful for that and I've tried to do a bit of that in return and um part of the reason why I do the things I do um he's a he's a small inspiration who make me do that in return to others as well so he's one. Uh, yeah. The other is is Alison Britton uh, or Alison Hopkins, as I originally knew her as. And uh, many years ago, um, I had spent four or five years living and working in Africa, which is a wonderful experience. And I learned a lot about banking end to end. I learned a lot about culture. I learned a lot about different people. I learned a lot about what the amazing continent Africa is and the various sort of different countries within it, which are very different in their own right in, in some cases. Um, but I needed to come back to the UK for family reasons in particular. And it wasn't easy necessarily to, to get a job back in the UK. There was no sort of return program with the Barclays group. Uh, and Alison offered me a job. Uh, in fact, I got a significant promotion with that job. Um, we didn't know each other or anything else, but she saw something in me um, and she made that happen. And she... And I'm, a, I'm grateful for that. But over the years, we have sort of kept in touch, sometimes quite loosely. I'm not, I'm not seen it for a little while, actually. But um, grounded, insightful, smart, fun, uh, low ego, uh, just really pragmatic in, in her style. 
And it's if there's if there's a style I wanted to emulate on a regular basis, uh, Alison probably has that. She's also, I think, an inspiration to many. There aren't many people who have successfully moved from being a very successful banking career to a very successful, maybe even more successful non-banking career. Uh, and she's one who's made that transition. So she she's uh, an inspiration as well. Great. Well, no, thank you for that. And you've triggered a couple of thoughts. What One is the Tottenham link. So um, here we've converted our garage into a, a very serious gym where Lee and I train. And our, as I say, our personal trainer, it's good to explain about this, Lee's personal trainer, who I occasionally am allowed to have a session with him if Lee is uh, busy with the charity uh, or with coaching. But um, uh, Keegan uh, is from South Africa uh, and he he has this this Adonis-like body and he plays or played in in junior uh, the junior Tottenham uh, club, you know, uh, talent scouts, you know, they were on the way up, but I think he injured himself. So wasn't able to carry on that film, but such a lovely, lovely man. And the second link with uh, Tottenham, we're going to be going to the Tottenham grounds on the 20th of April for a big launch event with the Department of Work and Pensions. Uh, and it's combining with it, it's a, it's a, a charter that they're launch, launching around women and violence against women and girls uh, and, and linking with Lee's charity, the Inspiring Leadership Foundation, helping girls make that social mobility step up and, and give them a chance to get out of the violence and the abuse and the trafficking that they're they're going in. So, so Tottenham has... Uh, strong leads uh, and, and links. So thank you for that. So yeah, David and Alison would both be fantastic guests on this series. So thank you for mentioning them. Um, thinking about people's life stories, you know, people uh, look at leaders like yourself and they go, well, you know, I can't connect with this person. You know, are they perfect in every sense? Where did they come from? What happened to them? What shaped them? You know, what was the journey? What gave you the ambition, Stephen, to push through so many different jobs, go work in Africa, come back here, and constantly learning and stretching and growing yourself. Where did that come from? Father, mother, grandfather, teachers? You know, what, what was it? Tell us a bit about that. Um, I mean, I come from a you know a relatively modest background. My, um, you know, knowing my family being to university, I didn't go to university. My, my eldest son is the first on my side of the family to go to university. Uh, and I'm enormously proud of him and, and being able to facilitate that. Um, I went to state school, it was kind of okay, um, but there wasn't much aspiration or inspiration uh, uh, around me. Um, you know, I didn't know anyone had been to university, for example. Um, I think my cousin had gone, but that was it. Um, and I sort of, I don't know, from, from that, uh, you know, I, I, I started working at 16 and at the most junior level, and I, I guess I saw around me... Um, People in doing jobs that were more senior to me, being better paid than me, and I thought I was at least as good as them. And there was that frustration that because of a, I didn't have a certain level of education or a certain background or a certain family connection, I wasn't able to to get into to that position. And I think that was really what drove me to why do those barriers exist and they do exist and they still exist and I, and I still experience those those barriers today um and I think the second thing and I don't this just I'm not sure what's created it but I have this strong desire to be the very best I can be and a strong desire to help others be the very best they can be 
and a strong desire that when we're as part of a team or a group and we're doing something for that to be the very best it could be that doesn't mean i'm overly competitive i am competitive uh, and i'm very happy to lose by the way if if we have given our very best and we've been beaten fairly by somebody just just better i deeply dislike sloppiness or letting ourselves down by not being the best we can be yeah it is interesting you talked about that uh when i did one of the psychometrics uh and leaded one too we had a very good psychometrician who was training us up and, and he looked at both our profiles and he said uh, so jonathan you're competitive and comparative lee you're comparative so this this explains that when we go and train in the gym with keegan We'll start, and it's really aimed for Lee, but I'm just joining in. But I will try out compete Lee, and Lee goes, "Look, stop it!" You know, like, "Oh, really?" You know, and and then to such a point, well, it's eventually, look, I'm not going to do this anymore. If you know, because you know, I'm I'm not going to try and constantly do that. So it is interesting this whole idea. Mel Robbins, who I was listening to her podcast, she's just started doing a podcast a couple of years ago, was very inspiring, and and partly due to her, I've got myself outside in the garden we have a hot tub and i've now got an ice plunge pool so oh, every morning every morning i've been doing my wim hof stuff going hot tub for five minutes ice bath for three minutes and that just starts me off for the day but mel robbins was one who was did a little oh. video and i watched her do that i thought i'm going to do that and she talked about this idea of competitive and she said before she said if a friend had a new kitchen i'd go oh how nice through gritted teeth but actually i was really jealous and not happy that they were having something better. But she said, I've realized with a lot of personal work that actually that there's no scarcity of success and abundance and happiness. There's no limit on it. It's not a, a small pie. You can have a much bigger, everybody can do well. So, so why not be happy if people genuinely do well, their friends or colleagues, be happy for them. And, and it, it takes a bit of work, but you've made me think of that. Uh, thanks, Sir Stephen. And, and if we were to look at your life, happiest moment that you'd like to celebrate and, and a dark moment and what you learned from that, because I'm sure uh, you, you've had a few of those personally or professionally. Maybe you might touch on one of each personal, one professional. But but what, what firstly, happy moment and, and that you want to celebrate and you look back. Would it be the CBE? Would it be something else, some some recognition for all the work you've done? Um, I think... The CBE was, was was a lovely thing, and um, what was it for? Just tell me. So it's for banking and social mobility. The the, the same thing that uh, I was uh, very nicely given an honorary doctorate for. Um, my 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 sister in law is a is a uh, how do I say is a genuine true doctor. She she studied to be a, a healthcare doctor, and she does an amazing job. But um, I did have a bit of fun with her when. Uh, the honorary doctorate came through, which apparently ranks above um, what I call a true doctor. Um, so uh, I've had a bit of fun with her on that, but um, which is a nice happy moment. Uh, but she, she she's awesome. I think um, the CPE was was very nice, and you know, obviously a lovely surprise. And what I you know, a, a lovely moment was being able to go to the palace to receive that with um, my wife Pavita, who has been. Uh, an absolute rock star in my life and I would not be where I am without her constant support challenge kick at the backside which we all need from occasion 
uh, sounding board, love, etc., uh, and, and some of our children. Um, as you know, I have four, and I can take them all. But um, uh, that, that, and they did all come to dinner afterwards. That was probably a lovely moment my, there's a regret with that is that my mum wasn't alive to see it but um uh that that was that was a was a lovely day but um I think you know that that was a highlight um you know not to see all that there, there's been lots of highlights along the way I, I, I've you know if it's a if it's a business outcome achieved through doing lots of hard work that's great to see I, I pulled together at Aldermore a really good team and look I, I spent 400 hours of my time interviewing last year um the outcome from that is this team and they're a great team each and every one of them individually and collectively and i don't think i've ever worked with as a team as good as they are and they're collegiate they're fun they keep me in my toes and that's something that you know is, as this moment of time in my life I, I cherish that team um you know i've got to keep nurturing and growing them and stretching them because they'll, they'll they'll want that but um that that's a highlight as well i think and there's a number of them, but um, first time CEO is is a landmark, uh, I, I guess. Um, it's, it's those, I'm struggling to give sort of one big moment because actually there's lots of little things. And I think it's important to celebrate lots of little successes along the way because that keeps you going uh, and yeah. it motivates you and, and hopefully motivates others. There have been disappointments along the way or things where I think I, in hindsight, I could have behaved better or done differently or maybe supported someone better. Um, you know, when I was really young, still in my teens, I remember uh, going out for a drink with, actually it was my boss at the time. I, I don't want to mention his name for the, what will become apparent in a moment, but um, I'm not sure I saw it at the time, but I had a niggle that something just wasn't quite right with him. Anyway, I said I, I needed to go home. He clearly wanted to, to have another drink, but it, we went home. Uh, he killed himself that night. Um, oh, God. I've never, you, you always think to yourself, if I just stayed with that extra drink, would that have been the same outcome? I don't feel guilty for it. Uh, I don't think, or at least not now, but you do think, what if? And, you know, if I could turn back the clock, I would. May not have been a different outcome. I don't know. But if I could turn back that clock, I would. There've been times where I haven't got a job that I really wanted um, for variety of reasons. And I'm sure the people who got those jobs instead of me were probably the right fit, but you you have to learn from those experiences and, and pick yourself up and, and, and sort of move on. Um, and there have been times when I think, you know, in my personal life, I could have been a better father or, or and or a better husband. Mm. Uh, and I've got balance in my life now where I I think I'm achieving I think I'm achieving that or at least I'm achieving to the best that I can be <clears throat> and yeah on that one family one and you and I have both uh, got divorced remarried and we've you know you found Pavita I found Lee and 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 I I know she, Pavita is like Lee it's like she's like your soulmate she's you know best friend she, she's a very wise very experienced businesswoman in her own right so you really are you know, people describe you as a power couple. You certainly are. But looking at the fact that we got divorced without going to any of the details of it, what have you learned from going through such a tough time? Because it, no doubt about it, I wouldn't wish divorce on my worst enemy. It's, it is a horrible experience to go through. But what, what is your le learning from that? So if there was a real failure in my life, 
that is it. Because that's what a divorce is. No matter whether you, you know, are happy getting divorced or not, ultimately it's a failure of something. Uh, and it's the end of something that what you probably went into thinking it would last forever hasn't. Uh, and people do grow apart and grow separate and separately and so forth. And certainly that was a large part of what was behind my divorce. Um, I think I'm on good terms with my ex-wife and uh, I care about her deeply and she's been really challenged with cancer more than one occasion. But it's amazing actually how she perseveres, fights and gets through it. I mean, she, she herself is an inspiration uh, as to that. And when you face the prospect of potentially losing someone at least in my point of view, I, I still love, uh, but didn't want to be married to anymore. Um, but that was, I mean, I think she, when she first had cancer, I was the first person she told. I was deeply emotional over that. And uh, uh, in fact, I moved back in with her for a while to, to help take care. And we had young kids. And you think about, if this person doesn't pull through this, I'm bringing up two young children on my own. Now, I had Pavita, so it wasn't on my own, but mm -hmm. I was the sole birth parent for those children if she didn't survive and if there's any animosity between people that's real life get over it support people because that is what it is all about and that was quite a profound learning for me there is and you know what it's like when you go through a divorce you know part of the divorce process it creates that deep emotion often anger and frustration and the legal process sort of in you know reinforces that to a degree um when i saw that person you know going through that emotion where you don't know whether they're going to survive they don't know if they're going to survive mm. you soon put it behind you yeah no i i really relate to that and uh i, I in my own circumstances, I'm, I'm relieved i've become friends with my ex-wife um and, and she's been through a health challenge and she's out of that but you don't you know it, it does churn you up and, and particularly of course where this is a really a business but a whole life kind of podcast you need to think about the integrated person because it, it's it's everything it's not you can't just have work being fine but home is a complete disaster which i do come across many leaders who because home is such a disaster they throw themselves utterly into their work they become workaholics they don't want to admit that but they do it in order to take up the pain away of that the home life is such a disaster so getting it all right and acknowledging the mistakes that we make. And I've made more than my fair share, I think is it takes a lot of maturity. So I just want to respect you for that. Um, just yeah. on that, Jonathan, I mean, you are right. To an extent, you can compartmentalize between the work life and, and, and the home life. But I don't think you will be the best you will be in either part of your life if you are A, not authentic and genuine, and B, you have to learn from both those parts of your life. And that doesn't mean you have to be overly disclosing or, or or anything else but you know they interconnect and intertwine uh enormously and i i don't think you'll be the best if you are not thinking at the other side of your life no i think you're so right and if we're good leaders we spot in the people who work for us that something isn't kind of right and i think it takes a special kind of inspiring leader who just picks up how are you and they go i'm fine and you go no, I'm not picking up that you're fine. I'm I'm not getting it somatically. I'm hearing the words, but everything's saying not. What what's really going on? Come on, let's go and have a chat. And then out it spills. Now, sometimes they don't want to talk about it because it's so painful, so difficult. 
Um, I'm just listening to my, I've got a young puppy who's seven months old. So if you occasionally hear a little yelp, she's just getting a bit sort of bored. Come on, dad, let's go out and play again. Um, you're, you're working very much, and I saw some of the, some great social media that you do. Stick around, you did some work before with Teach First, helping people moving into teaching, um, but also the Social Mobility Commission, helping young people uh, step up in a, a keen calling for you. And of course, with your own children as well, um, uh, who, uh, you know, George and Abby in stages they're at. If you could go back to being 18 all over again, back to the future, Stephen Cooper goes back and meets himself and um, all that you've learned, what would you say to the young version of you that you would share with other people who've got children, sons and daughters of that age? This matters and that doesn't. You know, what would you, what advice would work for you? It's a great question. I mean, wouldn't we all like to be able to do that? I mean, there are certainly things that I did at that age, as many 18-year-olds do, that I wish I hadn't done. And uh, and I, I've often said to to young graduates uh, at that age, you know, uh, be thoughtful how you treat people because you, that you will bump into them again later in life and, and so forth. And you often don't think about that at, at that age. Um, the two things I would say to myself one is one maybe more specific to me and my background and, and so forth but have confidence in your ability um and the interesting thing there is and you, you commented before on one of the pictures on my wall which was myself at, at, at harvard uh, and no disrespect to the amazing teachers and lectures at, at harvard but when i went there for for a few months um there were a hundred different um students like me 36 different nationalities thank goodness one only one other banker um i don't i mean i do remember the lectures and so forth there are some amazing speakers and it's largely sort of business related or culture and so forth i have never looked at a book or a note i wrote at that time since what it told me was that i was as good as those people um and it's that lack of confidence that i think my the circumstance of my upbringing sort of uh, created in me. Um, and I was able to benchmark myself at that point. And I kind of got that chip off my shoulder. Mm. And I wish I'd got that off my shoulder at a much younger age. And you often see that in young people, particularly from more uh, disadvantaged backgrounds, they just don't have the confidence. And that's a big, big part of the, the social mobility agenda. The second one is, um, and, and it's probably a link, but, do not restrict yourself. Anything, and I mean anything, is possible. And I, I learned that many years ago. I was um, working for Barclays in one of the African countries, and I was responsible for Southern Africa for, for a while. It's, it's one of the businesses there. And uh, I found all sorts of problems. And um, uh, my, my my boss at the time, when I told him, and these were, these were really major existential problems actually from a financial control point of view and we're affecting the rest of the the organization we're probably actually going to get our accounts qualified which if you're a bank is not good because it increases your cost of of credit which is fundamental to what you do and my boss at the time and i won't use his language word for word because it'll be offensive but um uh just said to me you better get it something sorted or you're going to get something killed um which wasn't particularly motivational however Maybe it was actually because I, after I sort of picked myself up and dusted myself down, 
very quickly myself and the team I put around me and so forth, we achieved some amazing things uh, in terms of performance, fixing issues, improving the business, all the metrics you want to see started coming through really quickly. And the learn from that, and I've tried to put it into my life since, is why do you need to wait until your back is against the wall before you do that? So I try to put my mindset like that in every single thing I do because you can achieve some amazing things. So Stephen, if there was one thing you could change in your life, if you could live it again, I think you've alluded to a couple of things there, but or a crucible moment that shaped you, what would you call out and, and what did you learn from that? I think... Um... two things really um sorry to make it two rather than one but um first one was uh you know it's quite profound for me and i don't know whether it will make sense to many people but I, i'd grown up in a a branch-based environment of of a, of a well-known bank but that was like a, the front end of, of that bank the engine the the thinking the decisions and so forth were all made in the back end the head office um and partly through David, who I mentioned earlier, I moved into a group strategy role. I was very privileged and fortunate to spend some time with McKinsey and so forth as part of that and learned a lot about thinking about things and how to use data and so forth. But as you can imagine, the environment I came from, which was not that, uh, which is largely a thing with people and customers, and by the way, I loved all that, but I then went into a very different environment where I was largely in a small team, all of whom were very highly educated, good people, smart people, but very different backgrounds to me. Um, and I couldn't think strategically at all. Um, now, you know, and I really struggled with that. Uh, and in fact, I was about to go to my boss at the time and say to him, look, I just can't do this. Um, I need to go back into my old world. And for whatever reason, that day just turned out to be a good day. Uh, and I realized I could think that way. And I was contributing a lot to the debate and the decision-making and some of my thoughts were then shaped a bit more and actually then put into action. And I stayed and, and progressed very well from there. Um, but that was quite a pivotal moment, I think, in, in my career at helping to think about business direction and, and turning that into plans that you can then execute on. And, you know, maybe that links to sort of confidence and so forth. The second one was... Um, and it's interesting because I gave up a promotion to do this job. Um, and by this time, I'd been put onto the graduate program as a non-graduate, the first four, I think, in Barclays to do that. And Which is well done, Barclays, because two of those four were still there 20 odd years later in, in very, very senior positions. Um, so they were good at spotting, hopefully spotting talent at that point. But um, uh, I, I missed dealing with customers um, and I missed working as or leading a team. I wanted to lead a team. Uh, and uh, I, I, I could have led a team in, in a head office environment in, in a more senior position, paid more, etc. But I wanted to be back in front of a customer, so I gave up that promotion, which was painful at the time actually, because you know, young person and you know, money's important and trying to get a house and family and, and so forth. Anyway, I gave up the promotion and I went to Africa to to lead parts of the business out there. It was transformative for me. One is I learned our bank ran end to end. You know, if we lent someone some money in, in the UK, you didn't think about where that money came from. I had to suddenly run a balance sheet as well as a business, as well as a team, as well as think customer, as well as think regulator. 
Um, and it also taught me a lot about culture. Um, you know, clearly, you know, I'm a white man and I was no longer living in a, a, a typically white country. Um, I saw racism. Uh, I felt racism towards me. Um, I saw how badly some people had uh, had been treated. I saw you know, the advantages and the very clear disadvantage of, of, of England's sort of heritage in the world in, in some places. Um, and uh, at the same time, HIV was very prevalent and there wasn't at that time proven treatments and there was stigma associated with that. And, you know, lots of really difficult things to, to talk about and navigate as a team. Uh, and I was leading that business, clearly not from the background that they all lived in. And um, that was, you know, a very pivotal moment. I was very successful out there and I loved it. And there's some amazing people um, and particularly women who often bring up the family as well as generate the, the income for the family. Um, and it taught me a lot about society, taught me a lot about myself, taught me a lot about the art of the possible. Uh, and I'm still friends with, with many people I met all those years ago in those countries. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because in our charity, the Inspiring Leadership Foundation, uh, Lee really helped big time. Partnerships is often what we do with other charities. There's a great danger in the charity world that they get very sort of like Gollum, my ring, my precious. And they 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 stay to their own little bit. I just, you know, we want the money for us. And Lee's always been very open. I'll collaborate with charities across the field. So she collaborated with a charity in Kenya and also one in South Africa where I know you were. So in Kenya, it was in the slums of Nairobi with 13 year old girls um, and it was called Hope for Teenage Mothers. And we we went and we we did some work there with them and supported them in, in, the, in the crash, which they had for these 13 year old girls who had FGM, they'd got pregnant with their own babies and they hadn't even finished their own schooling at 13. Yeah. Uh, and that was pivotal for us. And also seeing how well people in the poorest part of Nairobi looked after their house, which in the space I have behind me here, which people listening won't have, but you know, it, it's a sizable room. This would probably be divided to four and four people's houses in yeah. which, uh, you know, five people would live in each house, but they kept it immaculately clean and they cooked in there and they lived in there and they slept in there and there was no crime. In fact, if there was crime, I remember one shocking time when there was a, a sort of hullabaloo going on and, and they'd caught two people who'd stolen something. They weren't from this bit of the town that they've come from somewhere else and they were beaten to death. Uh, and the police came and they said, well, they're not dead yet. The, the black police, they were black and they went away again. And like until, until they took the bodies away. And I thought this was just brutal. But the point was, no crime happened normally, you know, like all year. Whereas you'd go to the richer townships and the richer houses and they were constantly being broken into. But in their own community, they looked after each other, almost a bit like the old East End as you'd know it. You just don't do it in your own family. And then in South Africa, Wazamoya was a charity in KwaZulu-Natal, an area you know up from Durban. And again, in the Zulu huts there, giving you know a ten, what was equivalent to ten pounds into the kitty for the microfinance of the wives, that was like giving them a thousand pounds, and they could then get shoes to someone, and they'd lend it between each other. It was just really inspirational. And Lee got a shipping container positioned there with computers in it and a library at one end. That was transformative when there's eighty percent unemployment. So, I think the work you did out there and all that you learned. I've never forgotten those two experiences in South Africa and then in Kenya. And, and you were there all the time. And the experiences must have 
really deeply shapes you. I think you're um you're talking about Kabira slum in, in Nairobi, which is a huge slum. Um and like, like you, I was struck by you know, it's amazing. You would see people coming out of that slum on a Sunday going to church in their Sunday best. When I say Sunday best, they would be pristine, often white clothing, pristine. And yet they didn't have uh, clean water. They didn't have washing machines. People who have those things, lucky enough to have those things, which you take for granted often, uh, more often than not, would, would never be as well turned out in that. So that that pride, that that self-regulation, like you, I, I saw people, in my case, I saw some shots for, what do we think, bad in, in that community, but the self-regulation, the, the sense of purpose and pride, uh, even though relative to what you and I and probably many people listening to this have, was 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 quite something. You, you see a different side of humanity that we just don't often see in our world. Yeah, well, that takes me nicely on to, I'm going to take a trip around the Inspiring Leadership Compass with just some quick tips from you and what worked for you, just like uh, I love the book by uh, General Colin Powell. It worked for me in leadership in life. And and these are things and tips and experiences that might work for you. They might not work for everybody. But if we go firstly at the top of the, the compass, the, the true north, the, uh, the the moral question, the your integrity, your values, your beliefs. So when you, you know, you've got a clear set of values and principles you live by. And, and like me, you've made mistakes over the years and it hasn't, you haven't always got it right. But when you let your value set slip from what were the standards you hold yourself to, how did you bring yourself back? You don't have to give specific example because it might be too painful, but up to you. But but how do you bring yourself back and just learn from letting your value slip and, and the impact it might have on people's trust in you? Um, so that has happened to me. Um, I never slept well when that happened. And I generally sleep very well. Um you know, my conscience is generally pretty clear and I sleep well and happy when I've not followed my my true north for whatever reason. Um, it might be because I don't want or I'm uncomfortable with the potential consequence or maybe I don't want to have a difficult conversation with someone or whatever else. Um, but it's always nagged at me because uh, that's not who I am. And I don't believe that's the right way to to do business and I don't think you should shy away from difficult decisions or difficult conversations. And I've made some very profound business decisions at moments in my career where you know, thousands of people were going to be made redundant as a result of that decision. But I've always been open and honest and transparent around that. Uh, and I try to do it in a way that gives people dignity and choice and openness. And when, on occasion when I've not quite done that, I've regretted it and i've come back to it to put it right yeah no i completely relate to that and time and again different leaders particularly ceos one ceo said to me when i was having a dilemma as a managing director he was a uh, uh, almost like a bit like you had uh, david roberts as a, as a mentor to you and he said i was trying to make a decision about somebody but i was sort of putting off dealing with the fact that it was a really terrible fit they weren't right for the job and he said, Jonathan, what does it know now about that person that you'll find out in 12 months time? And I said, well, I know it's it's never going to work. He said, well, why are you waiting a further 12 months before you, you deal with it? Be firm in the decision, be kind in the execution, because you know it and you want to help them find their happiness elsewhere. I didn't <laughs> realize it was a nice phrase of putting it, but help them find their happiness. Because he said, they're probably not at all happy there. Totally. Totally. You're not happy. They're not happy. Everybody knows it. 
but you're all avoiding the issue. It is a lack of courage. So you've got to have courage to look them in the eye, thank them for what they've done, say this is not working, let's find your happiness elsewhere and help you know, be, help them leave with dignity. Uh, as they came with dignity, help them leave with dignity, but don't avoid the issue because everybody else, they time know. and again, they, and they think you're weak. Yeah. Because totally. they go, you're letting this person underperform and you're holding us to certain standards and behavior that we should behave. And they're not living by those same standards. What's wrong with you? Can't you see it? We can all see you're not dealing with it. So when you do it, they go, thank God, this, yeah. this man or this woman's got courage. Yeah. Totally. I think the other thing I've learned with that, you know, and unlike many of us, I've over the years probably not made decisions. Well, I know the decisions. I've not done it as, as quick as I perhaps should have done. Um, and I think I've got better than that. But I've also learned I will always have that conversation myself. Yeah. I will look that person in the eye. I will own that decision. They know it's my decision and I will communicate it. They may not want to talk to me after that or anything else, and I'll get someone to then sort out the, you know, the the details, as it were. But own that decision and do it yourself. That's, you know, it takes courage, but it's a much better way of doing it. And that person will respect you for it. They may not like you, they will respect you. You're so right, Stephen. I, and once um, uh, when I was in Penna, I, I, I the couple of associates, they weren't full-time, but, but they just were not, good coaches and I got the lady who looked after them for her to have a conversation with them but they knew it came from me so in fact one of them met me in the urinals and he said hello terminator oh god how petty you know okay yeah you know it's just not working it's time for you to do something else the reason they had to go actually was an interesting one but I should have owned it and I didn't uh was that the way they treated the lady on the front desk on reception uh, with great disdain and, and superiority yeah. was so different from the way they sucked up to the CEO that I actually said to them before I didn't have the real conversation, but I, I said to them at the time, this is really not working because the way the way you are speaks so loudly. I can't hear what you're saying. It's a quote from someone else. But I, I said, it's just the way you are. It's not authentic and it's not congruent and it's not it's not equality. Um, they didn't like that. But anyway, yeah, I, I, I've definitely learned that one. Purpose. Just, just on that, it's an interesting thing because how you see people treat others is hugely important. One of the things I learned most when I, when I ran the private bank, Co, which is an amazing organisation and tradition and, and values, family values, it's family owned, as you know, uh, and you know the, the lead family uh, partner well. Um, but what it taught me was really the word of character. And if you think about a private banking relationship, whether you offer lots of flexibility and so forth, it is about the character of the person. And it's the, the, the questions I learned were, first of all, you know, is, is the person of sufficient value that you want to have a private banking relationship with? What you're really talking there is financial value for, for both sides. Important, because otherwise the cost model and so forth doesn't work. More importantly, and much more important is, is this someone you want to be working with? And I used to do things like if they were an entrepreneur or a business owner, I used to sort of look up online and see what their customers say about them, see what their suppliers say about them. Do they pay their suppliers on time or do they make them wait and make them sweat? What do their staff say about them? Do people like to work with them? Do they feel fairly treated? That says a lot about the person. If the character is right, everything else usually will fall into place. Mm. Oh, I, I so love that, the, the, sort of the character ethic. 
the the importance of, of of who they are so so important thank you for that um which leads me on to another one closely linked the second of the eight components pq meaning and purpose you know why you Stephen, do what you do what your calling is your vocation um if you were to give a tip to people listening about finding their sense of meaning and purpose because it's always very important you know when you've got someone who really works for you with a sense of a calling and they're really it's not just a job it's not just to pay the mortgage because that's the wrong kind of employee um they'll just do enough to get by rather than go the extra mile for the customer but what is it you'd give as a tip to help people find what is their their meaning and their purpose in the in why they're here in the world so i believe when you get up for work in the morning and we all do that four, five, six, sometimes seven days a week. Uh, you've got to want to go to where you are going. And if that, and look, people motivated by different things, but it's very rare you see people purely motivated by, by money. Because even if you are motivated by money, if you've got to get out five, six, seven days a week and then do something you really dislike doing, no matter how much money it is, that's not going to work for long because you're just going to hate getting up in the morning. And I've had that once in my life. Uh, and I couldn't cope with it for more than about six months. I just hated the environment I was going into. And I, it, my demeanor changed and it was difficult getting up in the morning and going to that place. So I like doing what I do. I, I get out of bed, no matter how much little sleep I've had, I usually bounce up and, and off I go. Um, I, I bring it to life with an example. Um, at Aldermore, that, that there's many things I, I changed. And, and and changing the one thing mm -hmm. i've not changed pretty much at all is its stated purpose now lots of people talk about purpose and so forth but um it is and i've tweaked the words a little bit that i i, I try to do it more because the the, the purpose statement is backing people in life and business i just added the word more backing more people in life and business um and the reason i say that because that's what we do we're a specialist bank a challenger bank we help people get a home for the first time who can't get a home uh, mortgage through, through a mainstream bank. That's not bad credit or anything like that. It's just we look beyond a credit score. We look at their, their personal circumstances, which are often unique or they're going through a challenge in their life and, and so forth. We help businesses to expand that others may not. And that's what I used, as I said earlier, the, the underserved or the underwhelmed who feel disconnected to a large organisation. They can't find a phone number to speak to someone and so forth. And, and we do all that. The point I'm getting to, the biggest positive surprise I, I found in the business were the people in the business, particularly lower down, particularly customer facing. I've been around for a while, as, as you as you as you pointed out. These are the best I've seen. Mm. They are just awesome. And why did they come to us? That purpose statement they were playing back to me. It is attractive people because when they go home at night, if you say to your your mum and your dad, and some of them do have mum and dads, you know, I feel old compared to them or to their partners or to their kids. I helped someone get a home for the first time today. That's impressive. I mean, you just feel good about that, right? Um, and that 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 is what makes what it's what made me take this job. It what makes me keep happy in this job. And uh, I have a duty to make sure those people have the best products, services, technology, enablers around them to continue to live and breathe that purpose. Yeah, it's lovely. And 
it resonates with me. Um, I, uh, Lee and I are lucky enough to work with a lovely organization uh, called Remitly Global. They do remittances around the world. I don't know if you've come across them, but they started 11 years ago. Uh, Matt Oppenheimer, uh, yeah. who you'd know from yeah. Deanna. Yeah. Um, lucky enough to work with Matt and his board, Josh, uh, who's now, they've gone and bought a business in Israel. We were working with them there. And and as you probably know of them through through your strong relationship with Deanna, um, they've almost got like a business which is a bit like a charity. They've got a real calling about helping immigrants to improve their lives and send money back to their loved ones. It's it's really so focused in a similar sort of way. And the people in the organization, it's a joy to work with them. It's our of all the organizations, it's probably one of our favorite to work with because of this calling, this purpose that they have and why people go and work there. Uh, very special links to Nicaragua, where they got people working from there, the call center from the Philippines, um, also Poland, uh, some people working in Ukraine in the middle of the war and things like that. Very special. Let's go to health. Uh, health question. Now, you're a man who does triathlons and adventure running events. Uh, you and I have always been in our own sort of mild way, just sort of egging each other on to do another crazy thing. And... Uh, um, said, so what what's your tip uh, at, at your age of a very young man compared to me, uh, some old old bugger like me? But your advice to people listening about keeping up your physical health and also looking after your mental health and and, and those things because you've you've kept a close eye on both and it, and and also you try and create a healthy environment at work, which is another important thing. But what's your tip on health, mental and physical? So I don't think you can be your professional or business best unless you are healthy in other parts of your life. Otherwise, it creates stress in you. Uh, and look, I grew up in a in a family where there was quite significant uh, mental health uh, issues. Um, and one of my children has some, uh, a mental health challenge and she's doing amazingly well now by getting on top of that. Um, I... Like, like many people, you know, when I have a, a difficult day or I need to let off steam and uh, I've learned to do that through exercise. I, you know, I used to do triathlons and tough mudders and things like that. I do a little bit less of that now uh, as I've got a bit older and uh, time and everything, although time is, is, is an easy excuse to have. Um, but I do do the following. So I train with a trainer with, um, we either do heavy weights or we box. And I do that twice a week and I never miss that. I put it in my diary and I never miss it. Mm. Uh, it's easy to think you're too busy or getting away, but reality is I don't think my life has changed by doing those two sessions. And the reason why I do those two in particular, I can't think about anything else. I'm thinking about either I can't drop this weight because it's going to hurt me. Or if I drop my guard or I'm boxing, it's going to clobber me. Um, and it's a great way of I switch off for that period of time. I can't think about anything else. Um and it's a bit like sort of financial well-being. You, you don't want money stress and so forth. Now I, I, I'm, you know, I'm blessed that I don't have to worry too much about that. But um, uh, and I, it gives me great pleasure to to help family and friends and um, either reduce some of the stress for them or, or, or to create nice moments for them. The the other thing I've I've learned as I get a bit older, maybe a little bit less physicality and. Um, uh, and I learned this in lockdown is I, I give myself a non-work project. So uh, I, I, I completely, I didn't do it myself, but I planned it, I worked with the builder and, and so forth. But in lockdown, I completely rebuilt my 
my garden. And that gives me immense pleasure. I maybe think about things differently. And I, if I was thinking about that, I couldn't think about my, my job. And at the moment, my, I, I am I'm building my wife a bar uh, in, in our home. She's always wanted a, a home bar and she doesn't like the little side table we have, which I call a home bar. So I, I have designed a home bar and I've got a, um, a builder and electrician helping me build this at the moment. And it's a project that I love doing and the intricacy of it all and everything else. And when I'm thinking about that, I can't think about other things. It's that switch off. And um, I really enjoy it. Yeah, it's, it's very important to have. People don't give themselves enough downtime and you cannot always be on. The battery runs out. It's it's you need this. It, it's a uh, you need stresses, hormesis. It's good stress. Like me going to the plunge pool, as I was discussing with you, ice cold and the ice is just floating around me as I'm sitting there for two minutes going. Oh. Um, but you also well, I can relate need... to that, having had a, a broken down boiler for a week with cold showers. Week. <laughs> but, but the important thing I'm getting to in that is um, I come back to my job or my family better as a result of doing those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you've got to you've got to be present at work and then at home. You need to switch between them and you need some downtime. You need some time on your own, however extrovert you are. Hey, look, there's so many things we could talk about. We're in the last uh, five, ten minutes. Um, I'm going to be get you to talk about executive teams, you know, turning a toxic team healthy and then favorite book and then a two minute top tip. But of the other elements of inspiring leadership, we've got emotional intelligence, we've got uh, diversity, quality and inclusion, we've got resilience, we've got uh, your personal brand and the brand of your organization, we've got legacy. Is there, if you were to pick one that you want to give a tip about, EQ, uh, diversity, resilience, brand, legacy, which would you pick and what do you want to share on that one? The thing is, I think they're all inter interrelated actually, but... Um... Uh, let me focus on on diversity. Uh, I have learned in my experience, look, there's loads of academia on this, but the more diverse your team that you have around you, the business undoubtedly performs better. Um, I've, I've, I've been in situations where the team was not diverse. And when I talk diverse, I don't just mean gender, ethnicity all that is important age i'm talking background experience perspective um i think i've worked with you in the past jonathan around i've actually hired for a certain myers briggs profile when it brought home to me when i had a team of extroverts we we restructured and suddenly the, the extroverts are gone and we were left as a team of introverts boy it was hard getting team meetings going all the frustrations i had from those extroverts i wanted back um but in all seriousness you 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 get better debates, you get better thoughts, you get better outcomes, you avoid groupthink, and it's more fun. Yeah, brilliant. And that takes me on to, to teams. Uh, you, you've worked with so many teams, and I, I've had the honour of, of being a team coach for you and your team at times when you want an offsite or something like that. It's uh, a real pleasure. I'm in, uh, enjoying just going to go to Portugal with a uh, a top branded name from Germany, one of the big German organizations. And they they want to get together for, for three days in Portugal. And, and we're planning, the CEO and I, some some events. But you were very good that way. I remember uh, one in particular that we, um, we worked together very closely. 
when you're trying to turn around a team that is slightly toxic, might be an individual or just the culture that you've inherited when you came there was not healthy or somehow it slipped or changes like you in turn, turn over people and it, it went toxic. How, if you could have tipped people, how will you turn it into a high performing team? If there was, I mean, there's many things you can do, so, but if you were to give a couple of bits of advice, what would you advise? Yeah, look, I've I've, in, I've inherited teams like that and uh, not working together, team of individuals fighting with each other. Uh, the worst behaviour that you can possibly have, in my view, is um, disagreeing with each other outside of the meeting uh, in front of others. Because if any any organisation, any business, commercial, charitable, whatever, they deserve to have a leadership team who are aligned, and it's miserable if they're not. I think when you're in that situation. Um, talking about your values and behaviours and, and ways of working as a team, playing back, not working that way, how that plays out in, in the business. Um, you'll often find actually in an organisation, if you're a badly behaving or toxic team, the people in the business know because they'll all be talking about it. Uh, and, and in some cases, they'll be voting with their feet and going somewhere else. Uh, and you'll, through time, you'll see it in the business results and, and so forth. Um, sometimes those teams need a, a jolt, Jonathan. I mean, look, you've on more than one occasion, you've been tremendous at helping nurture teams that I've been part of uh, on occasion. And in fact, on occasion, you have given me some feedback on one individual who you you thought was toxic, and actually I hadn't seen it, uh, and you were right. Um, and that jolt can also be on occasion letting one or two people go. Um, uh, I don't necessarily think I have a track record of always coming in, joining a business and getting rid of the team and bringing my own team in. On the whole, actually, I like to work with who's there because they tend to know the business. And you can, in my experience, you usually get more from them in some shape or form, or you always find someone lower down who's a hidden gem and you can bring through, which brings that fresh pair of eyes, that fresh pair of perspective, that fresh energy. Um, but you, you have to do something. Um, and don't be afraid to, to make decisions. Twice I, I've let the most successful commercial person go because I thought their behavior was poor and um you know you often think well will the, will the commercial performance of the business suffer you know what more often than not it doesn't it gets better even still yeah I, I'm so with you on that and there's an organization I'm working with where they're forgiving the bad behavior of that individual uh, and he's toxic but they're all stepping around the elephant in the room but they don't respect the CEO because he's letting that person get away with it. And the others resent that because they're living the values. And this person can sort of throw their toys around and be a bit obstreperous and, and be an individual and not be a team player. And, and, and I don't think that's healthy at all. Not okay. Uh, not okay. It's definitely not okay. So um, final couple of questions, favorite book on leadership as a, as a, a, a honorary doctor, um, you've done your fair amount of study. But recently, if there's a book or a biography or something on fitness or health or well-being or leadership, what, what book would you recommend? And why is it worth, um, hopefully, in my case, listening to it? Yes, I'm dyslexic, but uh, reading for others. I read a lot of things and I read a lot of sort of short articles and, and so forth. If there is a favourite book, I still come back to the Malcolm Gladwell books, which I just and I've actually I've reread them uh, a few times um but i just think he brings an interesting perspective to to things so all his books i i really like um this isn't a book but a film that i took a lot of uh and i've watched it on more than one occasion 
um, was goodbye Bafana. Okay. How, how do you spell the second word? The second Bafana, word. B-A-F-A-N-A. And it's the true story of the one of the prison guards to in the early days to, to Nelson Mandela. Uh, and this prison guard was the son of a prison guard. Um another way of calling it, you know, bigoted uh around colour uh, and had grown up in that environment. Um and through time came to really admire the the values, the resilience, the stamina of Mandela, given all the you know, terrible things he was going through, isolation from his family, probably never think it's ever going to be released and so forth. And in time, he played a pivotal role in navigating between the ANC, uh, between ANC Mandela and the apartheid government. And he just saw how this prison guard a changed his own views of the world and by the way when he did that he was an outsider relative to the environment which he grew up in so he was isolated quite often violently so by the community his own family from which he grew up in so you can imagine the, the turmoil he must have been going through and it's just an awesome book uh, a film in this case i think there is a book as well but of, of how someone changed their perception and the resilience and stamina they had to go through to, to see that through. It's a, it's a really inspiring watch. I, I will definitely watch that. And for those who are um, listening to this podcast on various different channels, um, and 120 to 150 countries around the world, there's a lovely print Stephen Hoover has on the back of his wall, which is uh, a handprint, uh, a black handprint, um, which is one of a thousand uh, limited copies done by Mandela, and in the gap around the palm, it's incredibly shaped like Africa. You could say that's a coincidence, or you might just be looking for it, um, but very powerful. So Mandela um, means a lot to you and your time in Africa as well. So would you please introduce yourself again, the current role you're doing at the moment, uh, what, what your organization does, but what your two minute top leadership tip would be for people, that would be great. And then we'll finish at that stage. Yes, yeah, Stephen Cooper, I am the Chief Executive of Aldermore Group. We are a specialist lending and savings bank, challenging the way people think about things. And our purpose is to back more people in life and business, essentially the underserved and the underwhelmed by our bigger competitors. Good. And what would be your top leadership tip? My top leadership tip is back your instinct. Mm. Check that instinct by getting into the business, talking to customers, talking to colleagues, talking to your, uh, your customers who complain in particular. Uh, I have a customer who writes into me every week complaining about the grammar on our letters, and she's right, and we need to up our standards more. Um, if you do that, you will spot the opportunity where you can be better and you'll mm -hmm. spot the individual who can make that better, who's often overlooked by process or layers or, or other people. And if you do that, have the courage, the conviction, the confidence to, to see that through. Put yourself in the position of this business is going to run out of cash tomorrow or going to fail tomorrow. What would you do? And then go and do that. And it's amazing what you can achieve and it's amazing the fun you can have along the way and you will take people with you 
Fantastic. Stephen Cooper, CBE, thank you very much. It's been a real honor and a privilege for me and someone that I have a great deal of respect for to have you on this podcast. Thank you. Gordon, thank you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.